Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Stu and on the show this week I'm going to talk about whether cheese is as addictive as crack. Oh, um... Uh, when it when it comes to my own experience, I would I would say that yes, it is. Well, look, there's a there's a story going around in the in the mainstream media at the moment saying yes, science has proven that cheese is addictive and you're all vindicated. But uh, I'm going to look at what the actual study says, and we can uh, talk about what that really means um, a little bit later in the show. Claire, what have you got for us? Well, I'm actually going to look into the science of your siblings and how your personality is shaped by the siblings that you have and where you sit in your family. So if you're the eldest, middle, the youngest. Hmm. And some new research that's come out this week to actually shed some light on whether it has any effect at all on your personality. Okay. And Chris is talking to... Uh, Maura O'Connor, who is the author of a book called Resurrection Science, which is all about the ethics of de-extinctifying animals and plants and things and whether we should do it, even if we can do it. Anyway, more about that later in the show. Stay tuned. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So I've noticed a story doing the rounds lately. Uh, a lot of uh, newspapers and, and online media outlets have picked this up, saying that, that people who say they're addicted to cheese are vindicated because science has proven that... Cheese, cheese is addictive? Cheese is addictive, Yes. Uh, so they say, and you know, some of them have even got crazy headlines, um, you know, and and saying uh, that cheese is like crack. <laughs> so, the, you know, in answer to the question, is cheese like crack? No. Oh. It's absolutely nothing like crack, uh, which is addictive, but in a completely different way, um, completely different mechanism, whatever, blah blah blah. It does have some similarities. Um, but quite simply, despite all these articles, uh, it's not really like crack cocaine because that's, you know, that's an addictive drug. Um, it's quite a different thing. The other thing is we need to eat. So we might as well eat things that we like. Uh, and cheese is something that people like. But the reasons people uh, seem to get addicted to cheese and, and have these addictive behaviours um, is the subject of a recent study from the University of Michigan in the United States. And they're investigating the hypothesis that certain types of processed foods could trigger addictive behaviour in humans. And they'd observed, well, in previous studies, people had observed that, um, you know, rodents can exhibit addictive behaviour mm. uh, in response to... With, certain, like, chocolate or... Yeah, certain kinds of that foods. That sort of thing. Mm. Um, so the study took 120 students and got them to fill in the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is a survey designed to identify people who exhibit dependence on certain foods. 
Uh, and then in a second part of the study, 384 participants were given a forced choice exercise, which is when they have to choose one thing over another thing. Um, and they were using selected foods that they identified in the first study. So the first study, they people said, here's the food we most can't, well, that we can't stop eating, basically. Um, and in the second study, they were given the choice between various of these combinations of these foods. So what they found um, was that processed foods were preferred by most people over unprocessed foods in terms of not being able to stop eating them. Um, regardless of whether the unprocessed food had the same or higher levels of fats or carbohydrates. Right. So it's actually the, the, the concentration, I guess, of the fats and carbohydrates in the processed food. And by processed foods, you're talking... You're talking white Any... flour, white sugar, okay. you know, processed So cheese fats. is a processed food cheese in that. Cheese is definitely a processed food. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's got a lot of liquid taken out of it, for example, so you're left with a lot of milk fat and... Um, and anything that's had like a, um, had microbes sort of treated in a certain way, like well, cheese even even of, if you just uh, even without the um, the microbial that, activity, yeah, if you just get the you know literally the curds and whey, you separate the whey out from the milk, and what you're left with is the curds, which is all milk fat and milk sugars and all that stuff. So that's yep. you know that's, that's a process, still a process in itself, yeah. Um, so they propose the reason for this, that processed foods have higher rates of absorption by the body. So the delivery of fats or carbs, especially sugars, is much faster. So you basically, you know, processing the food concentrates it and makes it easier to digest. So you get this mm. rapid hit of fat or sugar, depending on what you're Rapid, eating. delicious hit. Mm. So it's the rapid absorption that's believed to be linked to the apparently addictive behaviours related to certain foods, combined with the high doses of sugars and fats in relatively small amounts of these foods. Um, so the paper is called Which Foods May Be Addictive? The Roles of Processing Fat Content and Glycemic Load, uh, and it was published in February in the online journal PLOS One. So the fact that it's only getting you know into the mainstream media now means it's sort of filtered down uh, through a number of layers of... Uh, it's being processed, but it, it's being processed itself. Yeah, it, it, it has been processed and concentrated to the point where <laughs> I guess the headlines are uh, probably a bit misleading. Um, <laughs> Imagine that, a misleading headline of a scientific article. No, that I know that never happens, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so one of the authors of the paper, Nicole Avina, said that the findings may help change the way we approach obesity treatment may not be a simple matter of cutting back on certain foods, but rather adopting methods used to curtail smoking, drinking, and drug use. So she's actually saying, you know, that the strategies for just like, oh, just reduce, you know, limit the amount you have is actually maybe we'd be better off um, using the same sort of, you, you should just quit that food or you should just, you know, right. quit eating those things. Yeah, yeah, cold turkey on cold turkey on processed turkey. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm sort of wondering if that could mean warning signs on cheese and <laughs> lollies. Um, obviously, more work is needed in this area to identify, you know, actual biological mechanisms because these are psychological findings. So this was a psychology study. Um, all of the authors were psychologists and it was um, basically sort of self-reporting. So there's no 
you know, long-term behavioural studies associated with this, no um, biochemical right. work to back it up at this point. Um, so we'd really want to do all that sort of stuff before anyone made any serious policy decisions about those sorts of um, uh, restrictions on these foods. One interesting thing the authors did mention was that potentially restricting marketing of these apparently addictive foods to children might be a good place to start so that, you know, just the same as we don't uh, let people sell cigarettes and alcohol to children, maybe we should not let people sell uh, highly addictive foods. But, you know, the jury's still out on whether we should be calling these uh, behaviours addiction Mm. or whether or not... um, you know, it's compulsive behaviour or some other kind of uh, psychological mindset, I guess. Mm. Uh, you, sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear the last bit. All I'm just all I all I want is a wheel of cheese right now. Um, if that's not addiction, then yeah. You just mention it. And uh, you, you just, just mention how my mind's gone, Stu. <laughs> I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Stu, let me ask you a question. Uh, what's your What's your birth number? I'm number three of four. Ah, so you're Makes somewhere... Makes me sound like a Borg. Yeah. <laughs> three of four. So you're somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I have I have an... My, my oldest sibling is a sister, my older brother, and then there's a younger sister as well, so... That's evenly distributed it is, between it is. the two sexes. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, how do you think this has affected your personality or has it at all? Um, well, actually, you know, us, us third children of four get together and have these conferences <laughs> and uh, I've found that I fit in quite well with those people. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I sort of feel the same. So I'm, I'm the youngest in my family um, and um, as the youngest, people normally attribute me certain characteristics based on the fact that I was born last and I'm the youngest. Apparently, this makes me more agreeable, uh, changeable, fun-loving. Um, whereas my oldest sibling is more likely to be driven and ambitious, hardworking and show neurotic tendencies. Interesting. 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 Yeah. Um, well, new research has come out that provides evidence showing that birth order doesn't actually affect your personality at all. Meaning everyone who said I was fun loving was wrong. Yeah, well, that's quite clear. It's <laughs> yes. quite clear to all of us in the studio. That's just not true. That is not true. No, no. Yeah, yeah. No more assumptions so based on the fact that I the am time. the youngest child. Um, but before I explain the new research, I'll give you a bit of a background. So all the assumptions that your personality is shaped uh, partially by your birth order go back to a couple of 20th century psychologists. Alfred Adler um, was an Austrian psychologist. He was um, around the same time as Jung and um, Freud, and he came up with the idea of personality affecting, um, or birth order, I should say, affecting personality. 
and specifically that eldest children were dethroned when a second child was born. So by dethroned, I mean they had to share their parents' attention. They had to share the limelight. Most eldest children don't like doing that, and um, that has a lasting influence on them. Um, I'd have to say just from, you know, just common sense would say no children like doing that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the third children and then another one comes along. You, you're going to be upset that suddenly there's someone but else um, taking your limelight. Imagine if you were the first and you had everything. Well, that's true. And then someone comes along and you got to share it all. Mm. That is that mm. is tough. That well, is tough. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a diminishing returns. Like you go from a whole to a half. <laughs> Yes. But, you know, if you're the second child, it's like, well, I've, I've only got half and I'm only losing. And then a third. And a third is, you know. Yeah. You're losing less. Each, you're losing each less child each that child. That's right. That's right. Um, so after Adler, a guy named Frank Soloway wrote a book that claimed that the big five person- personality traits, so openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, and agreeableness, as well as neuroticism, are influenced and driven by birth order. So this was pretty controversial in psychological circles, um, but had a great deal of support in society and just in the general just with the general public. People really like this idea. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because we like to feel like we have. Um, I don't know, a tribe of people, like you were saying, you go to the conference of the third, <laughs> the third born of four. Um, I don't know, but every, everyone seems to have latched onto this idea that somehow we're all intrinsically similar if we were, have the same birth order I guess, as, know, as it, others. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a form of pattern seeking that is yeah. very common to humans. And it kind of reminds me of the idea of um, of uh, horoscopes and astrology. Ah, yeah. In, in that people go, oh, well, I can see all of these character traits in myself. Therefore, uh, if, it makes sense that I'm yeah. an, an Aries or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, when in actual fact, most people have most character traits to more or less degree. <laughs> and you just sort of, you know, if, you, if you're looking for them, you'll find them. That's right. Uh, and if you've, got a, if you've got a template of boxes to tick, then yep. you say, oh, yeah, I'm like that. And if those boxes are fairly varied, mm. then it just, it means that the chances are high that at least one of them is going to be there, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's a continuum too. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm very organized. And it's like, well, you're not that organized, <laughs> but you, you're more organized than someone who's less organized than you, I guess. <laughs> yes. But, you know, it's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. If, if you look for something, you'll find it you'll find in most it. people. Exactly. So last week, a new paper was published um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science by German researchers, um, which pretty much found that there is no evidence that such a thing as a typical eldest child, middle child or youngest child exists in terms of personality types. So these researchers analysed 20,000 people. So 20,000 siblings across three countries. They were looking at Germany, the UK and the US. Um, And it was actually the biggest and most comprehensive analysis of birth order and personality to date. And they found that birth order um, had no effect on those five key personality traits that I mentioned before, which is a pretty big blow to the idea that it does affect personality. Mm. And a pretty big idea to, uh, a a pretty big blow to, I guess, what the general public sort of believe in terms of eldest children having, um, having one sort of personality and um, youngest children 
being fun-loving and whatnot. <laughs> um, and agreeable. And agreeable, exactly. We all know exactly. you're not fun-loving and agreeable. <laughs> it's, it's pretty clear. No, it's not, Stu. <laughs> anyway, um, but one thing that the researchers did stumble upon uh, while they were looking for effects in personality is that on average, firstborns score higher on intelligent testing, intelligence testing um, than their siblings. So on average, they have a higher IQ than their younger siblings. Now, as a third born, naturally, this comes as a surprise to me. Um, I mean, it's a bit weird, right? Like, why would that be the case? Why would would the eldest in your family, on average, be smarter than the rest of the family? I have no idea. No, it's it, it seems very, very, very strange. Um, the researchers suggest, they have a couple of suggestions, which I'm not quite sure, but... Um, one could be the effect of parents giving more attention or lavishing attention onto the the firstborn child. Um, because there's less distractions. Because there's less distractions and, um, yeah, and they really want to do it right the first time. They're, they've, they've got a lot more attention, a lot more time to give. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other reason that they were thinking is maybe um, the eldest child helps the younger siblings with their work. As they grow up, they might be teaching them things and that reinforces their own learning. So the eldest children learn the first time and then they get to reinforce that learning a second or a third time with every youngest children, with every younger sibling. Did they compare only children with the oldest of a group of siblings because... That I'm not quite sure about. Because that would be an interesting comparison to see if that actual having of the siblings makes them get higher IQ scores. Yeah. Rather than just that, you know, an only child may not necessarily have that same IQ level. That's a really good point. Mm. So the, the, um, the singledons or the only children could be the control group in that situation. Yeah. That might be um a part of like some sort of research that they could do next. Future studies. Mm. Absolutely. Um I sort of like the second way of looking at it in that it was um all of your younger siblings that made you oldest child be the smarter person that you are because that's sort of you know the only reason your older siblings are scoring better is because of you. You know? Because they're standing on the shoulders of younger children. That's it. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> but also, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, you get more responsibility as the oldest child as well. So your parents sort of go, hey, you look after the other kids. Yeah. So you sort of have to. You have to step up earlier. step up a yeah. little bit. Yeah, step up onto mm. the shoulders of the tiny, tiny, tiny siblings. siblings. <laughs> Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. All right, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I'm talking to Maura O'Connor, who is the author of a new book, Resurrection Science 
which looks at the science and ethics of bringing species back from extinction. Now, this is a topic that a lot of people, of course, are very interested in. But first of all, can you just tell me, how did you get interested in it? What got you started on this particular journey? Sure. I actually didn't start out being interested in de-extinction. I got interested in a really obscure toad from Tanzania that was in a captive breeding program in the Bronx Zoo. And um, that was sort of probably my most serious sort of exposure to conservation. And it just so happens that in the last, we could say even five years, that there's been sort of this these technological advances that seem like they could have applications in this de-extinction arena. So one of the ones that I think is really interesting is um, the fact that we can now take uh, skin tissue, skin cells um, that have been preserved and sort of reprogram them into an immature state. So before this um, was possible, it would have been sort of inconceivable that we could take stem cells from an endangered species. That just wouldn't have really been possible when you're talking about animals of which there may be only dozens or even less having access to stem cells in order to try and um, possibly create new animals in a laboratory wouldn't be possible. But now with what's called induced pluripotent stem cells, all you need is uh, skin tissue in order to possibly create sperm and eggs that could then be used to create new animals through in vitro fertilization. So there's some talk that that may be um, happening in the near future with northern white rhinos. The other technology that um, has really been talked about in terms of de-extinction is CRISPR-Cas9, this um, genomic editing tool that I kind of think of it as how you can copy and paste in a Word document, but we, or scientists rather, not myself personally, can now do that with DNA. And the idea is that if you don't have enough preserved tissue from an extinct animal, as long as you had sort of a map of their genome and understood the differences between them and a near uh, living relative, you could actually edit the DNA of that living relative and sort of recreate a genetically modified organism that ideally would replicate the original species. Okay, wow, that's, um, that sounds fairly impressive. So what species is this, this context is going to be used on? You mentioned the northern white rhino. What are they doing with that? Well, right now the with the northern white rhino, they've uh, created induced pluripotent stem cells, but they're just in a freezer. Um, it was the first endangered animal that they were able to do this with. Usually um, IPSCs, as they're called, are used in the field of regenerative medicine, so there's a lot of experimentation and research going into how could you use these for Parkinson's disease patients or Alzheimer's. Um, so with the northern right rhinos, it's probably still a long ways off before they really uh, use these uh, frozen cell lines, but they do have the intention of doing so. They just need the funding and sort of the ability to restart those experiments. And um, there's only I think, seven northern white rhinos alive, so the timing couldn't be more sort of critical. And then with CRISPR-Cas9, there's talk that this could be applied to passenger pigeons. That seems to be the case that is furthest along to my knowledge. Although I think there's also some idea that this could be used in uh, woolly mammoth resurrection, that you could actually edit DNA from Asian elephants and sort of create elephants that could survive in the Arctic. And all I just want to make clear that all of these are very sort of early stages. 
what I think is interesting is that it's being talked about at all. And I think it's, you know, no coincidence that obviously it's because the technology has advanced, but it's also because we're at a time in history when we seem to be losing many species. And there's a lot of sort of fear and guilt and, you know, a lot of uh, people who wish that that wasn't actually happening and that we could undo some of the things that have happened in the past. If people use these techniques, though, to resurrect these animals, do they have any idea where they'll put them if they've gone extinct because the habitat is destroyed? Yeah, so that is a really important question. I mean, there's talk that, um, I'm a little bit vague on the details, but there is a guy in Russia who sort of has set aside land that you could possibly introduce these so-called woolly mammoths. And in terms of the United States, where I'm from, with passenger pigeons, there's some talk that you could use private lands to bring them back in small populations and then have them grow. But I mean, those kinds of details have not been fully fleshed out or debated because I think it will be a very big debate. I mean, in the United States, we have many, many private landowners who do not want you know, endangered species on their property because then they have to be regulated by the federal government, it's usually a huge headache. And so it's sort of hard for me to imagine that many people would welcome these species back into our landscapes at a time when we don't really know how to live with other critically endangered species and give them the space that they need. But having said that, um, you know, one of the individuals who sort of committed himself to passenger pigeon resurrection is this Ben Novak, who's profiled in the book. And uh, he told me that he has gotten many, many letters from people who are eager to have passenger pigeons and to be part of this um, comeback of this amazing bird back into 21st century America. Well, I guess a little bit closer to home, the one that everyone in Australia thinks about is the thylacine Tasmanian tiger. Now, some people still think that it exists somewhere in the wilds of Tasmania, which seems to suggest that there may be enough habitat for it there. So. Is that more a feasible one in that sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thylacine issue has this really interesting history here in Australia. There's this um, initiative in the 1990s out of the Australia Museum to bring back thylacines through cloning, which turned out to be technologically impossible. I I can't necessarily make an argument that uh, that's a worthwhile endeavor from an ecological uh, standpoint. Is it a good idea to bring back what was a top predator into the landscape? It may be that it has positive benefits in the same way that ecologists now believe wolves play a really important role and benefit, you know, a lot of other species in the wild. What I think is, again, more interesting is why are we talking about this now? Like, what is it about thylacines? You know, what do they represent? What do they symbolize to modern Australians? And and why might they want to see them again or reject them like they did in the early 20th century as sort of pests and and not compatible with modern society. Those seem to be questions that are really important that we ask ourselves um, because certainly we're sort of facing the likelihood that extinction rates are going to to increase and have already increased and are going to increase even more. And um, I think this concept of, or rather this issue of how can we coexist with wild animals and wild things is very relevant at this moment. 
It is certainly a debate that you hear a lot. Do you think that has any benefits for the wider then conservation movement or is it something that is a distraction? Oh yeah, well I do think that there's a lot of skepticism whether de-extinction should really be spoken about or uh, considered a conservation tool or whether it's something completely different. It's just a sort of fascinating experiment and a test of our technological powers. In the book, most of the conservation biologists I spoke to, even if they expressed a personal theoretical desire to see these animals, because who wouldn't, you know, want in theory to see a woolly mammoth if they could, or, you know, that would be an incredible experience. You know, I don't think they saw it as very relative to the work that they do to try and preserve populations of of rare animals. And in fact, one told me that he found it to be an offensive conversation. And there's a sense that there's a public fascination with this idea and the media knows that. And so there's maybe some element of trying to capitalize on that fascination, whereas it doesn't necessarily represent the trajectory of the conservation community. But having said that, you know, I do think that conservation biologists are increasingly having to use genetics and genetic technology um, or at least an understanding of, of genetics in order to save these species and so like I said earlier I do see it as sort of on a on a spectrum of tools that are available to biologists today even though it's on a very very far extreme end of the spectrum. Okay, I guess it's all ultimately about saving the the natural world that we're doing so much to destroy at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's about what kind of future we want to be living in. Conservation biology, to me, is so interesting. You know, I'm not trained in it, but as a journalist coming to it, I started to realize over the course of writing the book that, you know, this is a, a, a discipline that's based on science, but it's actually all about value judgments. It's more like a religion. You know, what, what, um, which species do we want to live with and why should we care about them? There's no necessarily, necessarily any empirical data to tell us the answers to those questions. It's rooted in sort of our vision of the future and our own moral convictions. And so to me, it's an extremely fascinating field where you see, you know, science being served to carry forth those convictions and the convictions of a community and, and, and then the broader community too, which includes us, even if we're not out there on the front lines. Excellent. Thank you very much for, for talking to us, Maura. Um, Maura's book is Resurrection Science, available at all good bookstores. Yeah, thanks for talking to Lost in Science. Oh, thanks so much. This was really great. I appreciate the support, and uh, yeah, thanks. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsci at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in 
again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.